everyone, welcome to On the Shoulders Giants. I am Dave Griffith, here with the master hunter himself of all sorts of feet, Max Krug. Say hi, Max. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here today. Good. So, so Max and I are going to have a bit of a strange conversation. Uh, we're going to talk about feet. We're going to talk about big feet. We're going to talk about little feet. We're going to try to keep it like at least mostly, uh, mostly appropriate for you guys listening in the manufacturing industrial business sectors. Uh, but before we go on a strange tangent, Max, can you tell everyone what we what you mean by big feet? I think it's a it's a phrase or it's a phrase that you coined, correct? Yeah. So in a couple of companies we're in, we're you know looking at different operations, how they're doing things, and it's like I'm looking at it's like why are we doing it this way? And um, the response I got from the operator, well, you don't understand. If you do it the way the SOP is written, it'll create this undesirable effect downstream you little jam or some crazy thing will happen and so i asked the operator say okay do it so i can see the effect of what happens so mm -hmm. can you make the the jam happen or the issue happen for me so it's like reproduce the problem and they're like oh it's like it's if that happens i'm gonna get in trouble i said well ah. i'll take the heat for it if, if that happens <laughs> and so they do the procedure the way it's supposed to be done and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and I ask all the operators across all shifts and everyone's like, yeah, if you do this, this is, it's going to be trouble. And so I coined the term Bigfoot because it's like urban legend. It's like everybody's <laughs> talking about it, but there's no evidence that it's actually happened or seen. <laughs> I love it, Max. <clears throat> I love it. So I want to get a little bit more into that, but uh, in most of the cases, you have them go through, you have them run it well past what they think is is going to work. And and I would imagine 99 or 100 times out of 100, it doesn't jam. Uh, yep. Do they normally, do they have this like look and glow on their eyes? Like, oh my goodness, you know, this is wrong. All of my perceptions have been incorrect. I can go ahead and run it at 100%. Or are they like, this is a fluke this is never going to happen again. Yeah. So it's, there's one, they're sort of amazed. It's like, why it's supposed to do this. <laughs> well, at least if that's what I was told it was supposed to do, but I don't, it's not doing it. I don't understand why. <laughs> I love it. And I got I another it. story along that line too. I worked at one company and um, they have high setup time. So it was an organization that they had a huge setup time and um so we wanted to, I was going to watch the process and document sort of the steps in the process so we could work on reducing the setup time. And so the operator goes through his whole process. He does the whole changeover. He runs his first part through. He measures it up. He's like, wow, this is like right on. This like never happens. And then, you know, so there was another step of the process that I needed to observe but they didn't do it during this changeover. So the next changeover, I said, hey, call me in. I'll come in for the second one and watch that other piece of the process that you didn't do on this one. So I said, oh, since I'm here, I'll just finish watching the rest of the changeover. At the end of the changeover, um, he measures up his part and is like, man, this is like right on. That like never happens. So I'm thinking, what are the chances the two setups I watched, it like never happens that the part comes out correct off the end of the process? And so the standard for the changeover was like eight hours for the first one and 10 hours for the second one. And he finished the first one, like in six hours, he finished the second one, like 
just over seven hours. And so I go to the president. I said, hey, can you do me a favor? Just tell me, like, of all the changeovers that you have and you, you know, got the timesheets on how long it took to do the changeovers, how many came in under the standard? How many came in right at the standard? And how many came in over the standard? Mm -hmm. So I come back the next week. I said, okay, you got that data? He goes, yep, I got the data. So I said, so how many came in? The changeover time was less than the standard. Zero. Zero? Zero. Ah. That's interesting because I just watched two. Two, yeah. That came in under the standard. Yeah. So that's interesting information. So there's another thing. It's like, oh, it takes this long, but if it comes in under that standard, it still takes that long. That is shocking. Well, no, that, that's not shocking, Max. I feel like it should be shocking, but I also feel like at some point in life, like nothing is surprising. Right. Um, yeah, I feel like it, it's, it's probably one of those, it takes eight hours, right? And some jobs take eight hours, whether you work on them for eight hours or you work on them for two hours and you go find something else to do for the other six hours because the job just takes eight hours. Yep. So interesting. So big feet, when we talk about Bigfoot or big feet, which I don't know if it's the plural of Bigfoot, but it's also may or may not be a, a real thing. Uh, so I get to make up the plurality of it uh, live on this show. But so we've talked about big feet. And you, you also, when, when we go to organizations who haven't been around very long, you, you talk about little feet, right? You want to tell everyone what you mean by little feet? Yeah, so little feet is the, the baby of big feet. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's starting to develop those mindsets of like, oh, if I take this action, something bad's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I don't take this action anymore. And then that starts to get worse and worse and worse. And it's like, it starts to accumulate. And over a period of time, it becomes a big foot. Interesting. So it's like a small disruption that like, okay, this happened. And so I'm not going to do anything about it. And then it happens again, and it happens again, and it goes across multiple shifts. And all of a sudden, that one little incident becomes a company-wide issue that everyone knows about. It's like, well, don't do that because if we do that, it's going to cause a process disruption. Interesting. So I, I don't know. It's always, it's always interesting to kind of hear about how these have come apart, uh, come about. And I always find it interesting, especially for companies that have been around for decades, right? So sometimes, especially companies that are generational, right? So you've got a generation that came in and worked for some period of time and they've all retired. They, they've kind of put these thoughts in process of maybe a machine jammed once and now we don't do it this way. And my, my favorite thing, Max, is you come in and you ask why and they're like, oh, this is the way it's always been. And uh, almost 100% of the time, the, the way it's always been is just we've been running our system at a completely suboptimal level because this is the way it's always been. And I think that it's interesting, especially in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, as the demand for basically everything has significantly increased, it becomes all of those suboptimizations are, are significantly hurting us as companies and as in industries. And as we go through, uh, as we go through um, and finding ways to run more optimally to, to create more throughput throughout the system. Yep. Agreed. And so go ahead. So as, so I've done analysis on some of these 
Bigfoot issues. And what I find was that there was some special cause. So we can talk a little bit later about what's special cause and what's common cause variation. There was some special cause that created this undesirable effect in the process. And so they automatically associate that with it's like, oh, they don't understand what the difference between special cause and common cause variation is. So it's like, oh, if we just don't do that activity anymore, that issue is not going to arise. So then the process just starts to deviate more and more and more from normal. Yeah. And then pretty soon we're way off in left hand, left field. And the process is so far away from um, normal condition and we're not getting results and nobody knows how to get it back. So you talked about, okay. I believe on a previous podcast about that, you know, making all these adjustments, 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 and we're so far off from mm. normal. Absolutely. But only That's, like every facility I've ever been in, Max. Uh, Agreed. Uh, okay. So I, I think that's interesting. And I want to kind of talk about ways to combat big feet versus ways to combat little feet and maybe talk if there is competitive advantage for smaller, younger companies who are only dealing with little feet and the way to kind of write themselves. But first, I'd like to talk a little bit about special cause versus common cause variation, as you alluded to. I think it'll be very important for the upcoming example. So can you define special cause and common cause variation? Yeah, so special cause is some sporadic event that happens that causes the process to deviate from its normal condition. Mm -hmm. And you can usually assign the reason why it happens. So it's assignable cause. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a signable cause, it's a special cause, there's certain techniques, usually problem solving is a technique we use to address that. And we're going to put in preventive measures to prevent that special cause from happening again. Okay. Where common cause is variation that's inherent in the process. So we can't reduce it unless we change the process itself. So we either got to change the process itself or change one of the inputs. So the actions to address common cause and special cause are totally different. If you don't know the difference between the two, you're gonna most likely pick the wrong action. And so the example I like to give is like the process of coming to work each day. If we just take our coming to work each day and we can measure that process. So what time do I arrive every day at work? And I took that and I plotted it on a graph, a histogram. Mm -hmm. I'd see a normal distribution where it's like, okay, I don't arrive exactly the same time every time. I could be, you know, if I start at 7 a.m., maybe I get there at 6.55 and then 6.58 and then 6.52 and then 6.47. And there's variation in that process. So that variation we're seeing, we're saying it's inherent in the process itself. I, I need to change something in the process to reduce that variability. You need to change the time I leave in the morning, the route that I take, the mode of transportation. But then one day I'm like 20 minutes late. Mm-hmm. That 20 minutes late, why would I be 20 minutes late? Oh, I got a speeding ticket. I put it in the ditch. I hit a deer, right? Those are all imagine most of those are going to be more than 20 minutes late, Max. <laughs> but like, like a speeding ticket, okay, I can see 20. But like, how many times are you putting it in a ditch and you're only 20 minutes behind? Your neighbor with the bigger truck is coming in. I hope they got all wheel drive. Yeah, right. drive back out of the ditch. Absolutely. But Absolutely. those are special causes that happen sporadically, and we can assign the reason it happened. 
yep. and then put preventive measures in place to prevent it from happening again. Yep. So to me, the basis of the little feet is these special causes happen mm -hmm. and we just take it as like, oh, that's normal condition and it's not. Okay. So then we adjust the process for that abnormality when we should be doing root cause analysis to eliminate that abnormality. Agreed. Agreed. But root cause analysis is just, well, that's probably going to be a series of conversations uh, for a later date, as uh, as you guys will see at some point. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I like that. Um, and as we were talking, Max, it, it almost feels to me that with the market and the climate the way it is, with a lot of kind of influx of new people coming in to facilities with the opportunity for a lot of reshoring with kind of all of that up and coming. I, I guess the, the question becomes is, do you think that smaller, newer manufacturing companies are going to have a competitive advantage because they only have to deal with little feet because they aren't physically, they have not physically been around long enough to have big feet to deal with? Yep. So I think that that being nimble is a huge competitive advantage in today's market. So if you can react quicker you can get more productivity with the resources you have. That's yep. going to be a huge competitive advantage. Shorter okay. lead times, right? So it's like with all the supply chain issues that being nimble can be a huge competitive advantage. So what would you say to companies who, when you go and sit in a conference room table and people introduce themselves, they say, hey, I'm Dave. I've been at XYZ facility for 26 years. And then you hear, hey, I'm Steve. I've been at XYZ facility for 20 years. And then the, the, the fourth guy is like, hey, I'm Joe. I stopped counting after I surpassed 30 years of being here. Like, so the, those in my mind, and I've been to a few, like, so Max and I are working with a company that is a, a younger company. They, they are small, they're nimble. They at best have little feet if they're even old enough as a company to have little feet. And then I've gone to other facilities that, that I've just seen that. And it's like all this amazing enthusiasm coming from the operators. And they're like, yeah, you know, we can be better. We know we can be better. We just don't know how to get there. And then I, I go to the facility down the proverbial street. They're like, we're, we're generally happy doing it the way that we've done it for, for the last 30 years, even if the organization as a whole isn't happy. What do you say to those larger organizations? Well, first of all, there's probably lots of big feet out there. So there's probably lots of opportunity that they can't see because they're conditioned yeah. to the problem. So they don't see problems as problems anymore, mm -hmm. but to get them to see it and change is extremely hard. Right? So, yes. so, so how, how difficult would it be to do a transitional, you know, project with us? And it's like, with that many years, it's going to be hard. <laughs> It's going to be extremely hard. Yeah. Because there's so, because the Bigfoot has grown so big, it's across multiple departments, across multiple shifts. You got to convince all those people, mm -hmm. right, that there is a better way. Yeah. And that yep. this one incident that happened back in 1975 that changed the process forever was a one time event that was a special cause. That yes. probably the environment's changed and it no longer even exists anymore. <laughs> but they've continued to do that process that way for that yeah. many years. Absolutely. So getting the buy-in, you know, that's a important part of our process is getting the buy-in of, you know, what the change and what the change to, 
without that buy-in, you're not going to get a sustainable change. It'll just go right back to old practices. Absolutely. So you could get one shift to, to agree, yep, we can do it the new way. Then second shift won't do it. Third shift won't do it. Then it'll just be a huge issue to try to get people to, to change the new way of doing things. So getting rid of Bigfoot's hard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so kind of to your point, Max, uh, you know, you can figure out what to change and you can figure out what to change too. You and I have found a lot of people kind of lose what we would call like the fourth step of that process is how to create a sustainable change, right? How to make sure that the change that you enact is sustainable. Uh, so I, I sat down uh, with a facility, kind of the people that have all been there for 20 plus years. And we had a, a generally okay conversation in which I was listening to kind of the problems and frustrations, which are the problems and frustrations of, of most facilities. And then at one point, this gentleman just kind of like pointedly asked me, he's like, he's one of the ones that had been there. I stopped counting after 30 years. And he's like, and starting in like 1996, we started with this thing and we did five of these programs and all of the programs did a pretty good job. And then at some point, management leadership took their eyes off the program and the program fell apart, right? And like, we literally listed through four or five of these programs. And like, there are signs up on the wall of what the program was 10 years ago, like three programs ago, this is what we're doing it and how we're doing it. And so kind of, kind of Max, one of my main comments to him is like, man, I, I am here to help you guys change. Like, I'm never going to, like, I'm not going to come work the line. If I'm not going to come work the line, I have to help you guys change. And if I'm going to help you guys change, I need your buy-in and I want you to be part of the process. Like if management leadership ownership are the only people who are focused on this change and they're going to force you to do things as soon as they're done with it. And I mean, it might be two years. And for some facilities, two years is a long time for, for, for facilities that there are people there for 45 years, two years is a blip in the proverbial pond. So it becomes the, how do we get the, the buy-in? I like to use the, the phrase adoption, right? So how can we get the adoption? How can we create internal champions? And then if we can create internal champions, you just have to know the right people to pick. And if you can pick the right two or three people, then, and you can get their buy-in, then they're going to sway the entire shift, the entire, you know, yeah. or the, the entire operational section in order to do it your way. And we have to change not, we have to build not what to change and how to change. We have to build, this is the way that we're going to do the work. We're going to do the work this way. We're going to do the work this way every time. Everyone in the organization is going to do the work this way. And we're going to continue to do it until we forget how we used to do it, because this is the way that we do the work. And so I have found, but, but th those are always much more incremental changes, right? So smaller organizations, uh, more nimble organizations that, that are younger, that is much more easier to enact kind of medium to large size changes because they don't have the organizational memory of we've done it for yep. this year. I, I, when I learned this job 30 years ago, this is how the person taught me to do the job. This is how I've taught the 20 people since I became the, uh, the leader to do the job. This is the way that we do the job even if it's completely out of line with the SOPs and the theory of operations and kind of all of those things, it's the way that you learn to do the job. So that is much harder to create large organizational change. But to that point, Max, I think that 
those organizations have some of the biggest opportunity, like medium to long term, they have done well enough for themselves that they are able to, they, they've done well enough for themselves that they become large hundred million, multi hundred million dollar organizations for a reason. They have a product yep. or service that people want. Like you're going to continue to need gas. You're going to need to continue to drink milk. You're going to continue to buy juice and chicken and eggs on all of those things. If you buy it at a grocery store, it's almost certainly from a major organization, right? Maybe a fortune 5,000, fortune 10,000, something like that, because that is just how many facilities have kind of merged together um, yep. over the last decade or so. And while those are the most difficult changes, they certainly have the biggest opportunity because they've been doing it the same completely suboptimal way for the last, well, basically the entirety of their existence. Yep. And they're successful doing it. Yes. Yes. So they can yeah. change that mindset. Yeah. Right. That's where the huge opportunity comes from. Absolutely. So I would say that if you're listening to this and you're part of a large organization, you shouldn't say, oh man, I got to leave the large organization and start my own or go to a small younger organization because they're better. They are, I feel like they have the most, they have the biggest ability to make dramatic changes in the immediate short term. So like, uh, let's let's do a car example because i don't think max and i have any automotive clients at the moment so we can go ahead and talk about cars uh max and i both like cars um so you you look at the the big three um in detroit you know they continue to make cars the way that they've generally made cars for basically all of our lifetimes right and they are obviously profitable making cars because if they weren't profitable making cars they they wouldn't continue they would still be making cars exactly So they've got, you know, lines with thousands or tens of thousands of robots, and we're doing some welding, we're doing some other things, we've got humans coming in and out of those cells and those areas, and we're assembling it that way. And then you've got a company like Tesla, who's like, I want to make electric cars, no one has successfully made electric cars before us, every time someone tried to make electric cars, so one of the, the big guys bought up the electric car technology and just threw it on a shelf somewhere for 40, 50 years. But we're going to make it and we're going to take the concepts of we have to make cars this way. We're going to throw it out the window. And and they they brought in like literally every robot you could possibly think of, Max. I, I did some work at the Gigafactory um, out, you know, outside of Reno. And Max, I have never seen so many robots in like like dependent robots right so they were all dependent on one after the other after the other none of them were running they way over automated the whole system and had to like pull a lot of it back because uh, well i i mean we would call it dependencies right so like in, in the right. toc mindset there were too many dependencies and every robot had to be perfect in order for the line to continue and the next robot to continue to do it and at some point you reach too many dependencies that it doesn't work i would say probably accidentally Detroit, as we'll call them, they didn't have nearly as many dependencies because it was all humans doing the work. And then we put robots in for some of the stations, but we still have humans doing a lot of the work, thus eliminating or significantly reducing all of those dependencies. But my comment is like, they completely rethought how we're going to go ahead and, and go make cars. And 
now I would say that they're generally successful, right? Like they, like every other car company has the same issues that they do, but they were able to go from nothing. Let me draw this out. Let me try to bring in a bunch of people who may, well, I think it was tip. It was generally to begin with max people that didn't know how to build cars. And then they yep. had to bring in people who did know cars because they couldn't build any cars. And I, I've seen this happen in a number of different uh, like electric vehicle startups of people that I know who work there. Because they started with people that didn't know how to build cars. And they're like, we're going to completely reinvent how we build cars. And without Felmax, they had to bring in people who knew how to build cars because they couldn't put a car together. But even like the go-to-market, right? They challenged that. And it's like, yep. you go to any car company, it's like, well, you produce the cars and then you send them to the dealer and the dealer sends them to the, sells them to the customer, yep. the consumer. And Elon Musk said, well, I don't need a dealer network. Big three said, yes, you do. (laughs) No, I don't. I can go direct. So he just challenged that whole go to market concept, but that's Mm -hmm. the way everybody does it. Yep. He's like, well, I don't need to do it that way. Ours is a different model. Absolutely. And they've done it that I would say a hundred years ago, it made a lot of sense to have dealer networks because we didn't have things like telephones or the internet. Right. Right. I mean, we barely had power in some places a hundred years ago. So, um, yeah, so like it made sense that we have to put cars close that people can ride their horses or walk to go buy a car. Uh, so like I would say that makes sense. And Tesla just has the we're brand new. We haven't been around for 100 years. I can go look and not have these theoretical dependencies and see if I can't find a way to kind of rebuild the market and the way I do. Um, and, and then we get conditioned to these things you know that we've always done it that way i got another example so we had a friend from another country come visit us Mm -hmm. and we had him over for dinner one night and it's like we're sitting around the outside around the fire and stuff all of a sudden fire whistle goes off you know it's like six o'clock fire whistle He's like, what the heck is that? Is that like, is it a tornado warning? Is it like, a? are we going to get bombed? And I'm like, I stood back. I'm like, that's a great question. No, it's the six o'clock fire whistle saying it's six o'clock. He's like, ah. why do they do that? I was like, that's a great question. It's that like, they've question. been doing it for 150 years. Yeah. If you live in a small town, a lot of town, towns still have the noon fire whistle for what? It's like we all have smart devices. We know when it's noon, Ah, right? We don't need a fire whistle to tell us that it's noon or 6 p.m. But it's just challenging, like, things that we've always done. And it's like technology's changed. We have access to all this information. Mm -hmm. And they still use do the fire whistle? Yeah. Why do we do that? So the The, external environment's changed, but we never changed the process around that. Those are always good questions, and no one ever has good answers to the questions of why do we still do it other than that it's the way that we've always done it, which kind of wraps up the circular, that is a big foot. Like, we do the things the way we do it because we've always done it that way. And in your facilities, in your your businesses, if we do things a particular way be that are outside of the standard operating procedures – we need to go figure out why we do them that way. Sometimes it, they're, they're done that way for a valid reason, right? So for as many times as you find big feet, 
and it puts us in suboptimal positions. And you probably have people who have found better ways to do the exact same things that you do. So kind of the, the opposite of big feet is something that I don't think we've coined a term for, but we need to go find ways to create more efficient workflows, right? And if yeah. people have found ways to create more efficient workflows, many times we do that because it makes our lives easier, right? So maybe you can go ahead and run a script and go ahead and kind of figure out all of the information that you need to figure out in the, the background of, uh, you can go figure out in the background um, of your reports or sending your emails or, or doing your, your spreadsheets, right? Like that, that should be a positive and we should laud those people and congratulate them and find other ways to leverage technology in order to make everything that, that we do more efficient. Uh, but yeah, so any other thoughts on, on Big Feet, Max? Yeah, so I also see it in companies by misclassifying the, the issues. Okay. And we see it all the time with like, oh, we need to put a new ERP system in, right? It's like, because this ERP isn't giving what we need. So we need a new ERP and that's changing. That's like trying to reduce the common cause variation, right? We change the process, put a new ERP. But when we look at the issues, it's like the information that's going into the system is junk. It's special cause variation that's creating the system not to function correctly. So yep. now we're doing a whole change based on a common cause belief when it's a special cause issue. So that misclassification, so many initiatives are generated because of misclassification of the issue. And then now we got this new RP, it takes us two years to implement at all this cost and we still have the same outcome. Yes. Right? Because the fundamental issue of the data being entered incorrectly didn't get fixed or the yes. bill material structures wrong mm -hmm. or the, Right. There's, I've seen it all. Yeah. I, I've also lived through all of those uh, examples and, uh, and more on ERPs. And many times what we think uh, a software uh, is going to come in and solve our problem. It's, it's very similar to what we talked about last episode, right? Uh, many times we think a software is going to come in or something is going to come in and it's just going to immediately solve our problems. But if we don't fix the underlying causes or we don't build structure yep. around what we need, Yep. If our bill of materials are wrong in the way that we put it in now, there's nearly a hundred percent chance our bill of materials are going to be wrong two years from now because we haven't solved the problem of why our bills of material are wrong now. It's the exact same thing for, for data uh, entry. If we do a poor job entering data, if our databases are full of junk and we cannot make and do if we cannot make and have actionable changes based upon what we have in our database, it's not going to get better by implementing a system. That is an organizational change that has to happen. We have to have processes and procedures and training and accountability if we ever want to get better at that in an organization. But it's always easier to go ahead and blame the software than it yeah. is to say, hey, we have an internal problem. Maybe Max and I, maybe Max and I should just go sell, sell software. Like we can <laughs> sell a solve all your problems software. It costs $25 million. It's going to implement in 10 years, hundred uh, percent of the money due up front. And if within the first 
six years of those 10 years, we haven't achieved none of the results because we promised nothing, 100% money back guarantee, but you can't claim it until after the ten, full 10 years of implementation is done, uh, which gives us a full four years of not having to worry about it, Max. What, what do you say? Is, is that going to be the next venture? Sounds good. <laughs> Perfect. So if you guys have $25 million lying around and would like us to sell you a software that currently does nothing and does not exist, but it will solve all of your problems, uh, please feel free to reach out to Max or I, uh, because yeah, we, we, we can absolutely, uh, we can absolutely go ahead and do that. But, uh, but no, Max. So the other the, favorite one I like this, I yeah. see in companies is the 5S program. So I see all these 5S <laughs> posters throughout yeah. the plant and I go and look and the place is a mess. <laughs> I, I think it's irony. Like, I feel like most people that put up 5S posters don't do it for irony. I think at some point I may just have a 5S poster and uh, I can put it next to the mess that is my desk right now. Um, and I can be like, yeah, so I've, I've 5S'd it, right? I've got a, I've got a stapler and I've got scissors and I've got, I don't know, I'll have to come up with a couple of other things. A sharpener? Start, uh, a sharpener, yes. Yeah, I'll have to come up with a couple of other things that start with S and it'll, it'll just be listed uh, like that on there. Um uh, Right now, so I think that that's interesting. I think that this has been an exciting conversation on Big Feet. If you guys have thoughts or questions or experience this within your own facilities, please feel free to reach out. Speaking of, well, maybe on a slight tangent, um, if you guys haven't heard, Max and I are going through the synchronous management profit-based manufacturing for the 21st Century Volume 1 book. It's by a gentleman named Shri who Max, if you guys listened to the last episode, you know Max took classes with us, with him, and we absolutely cannot pronounce his entire name. So it's with Shri. We'll go ahead and put a link to the comments down below. Max and I will be together live at some point the uh, the week of April 25th. Um, you guys will be able to go ahead and see that link to the event uh, when we get together on there. Uh, we're going to get together. We're going to go through the book. We're going to talk about TOC and everything else. I'm excited to go through it. It's been uh, it's been a great read, especially when we talk about how can we go and implement some of these these thoughts and strategies. Um, beyond that, if you guys want to reach out, you can reach out to Max at Future State Engineering or me through LinkedIn through the emails, uh, kind of any of those other things. We'll go ahead and have all of the contact information below. Um, Max has a synchronous flow workshop that comes up once a month. We'll go ahead and link that in the uh, in the uh, in, in it below. If you guys want to see how you can go literally change your entire mindset on how flow works within a facility, you guys can go hang out for uh, four hours. I was going to say at least a couple of hours. Uh, I, I'm, I'm working on Max. Ma Max and I have this like diametrically opposed concept. Max is like, I'm going to give them everything they need to know. And I'm like, Max, can we take like 80% of that and do it in just two hours? At some point, at some point, I promise it'll be less than four hours. But if you guys want the whole eight-hour operational excellence workshop, you guys should should reach out, talk to Max about that, uh, about that as well. But no, synchronous flow. It's an amazing workshop. I've been through it three or four times, including a couple of times on customer sites. If you guys want to have the ability to go through and like dramatically change your mindset and really understand flow, like TOC, Six Sigma, all flow-based uh, concepts and methodologies. And you think flow is easy and like the concept of flow, like water running through my fingers. Yes, that's easy. But then you go try to implement it in your facility and it becomes significantly less easy. In fact, one might even call it downright hard, if not impossible, if you don't really understand how to go ahead and leverage that. And uh, as Max takes you through all of those, I'd say they're very enlightening. And I, I would recommend going through it multiple times because actually 
I just had a resource go through for the third time. And he said to me after the third time through, he goes, I finally understand what you were talking about. <laughs> okay. I, I love it, Max. I, I love it. Um, yeah. So I think Max has multiple months. So he does it once a month. I think Max has multiple months already set up. First Tuesday of every month. So, to, well, tomorrow, live time, but uh, first Tuesday of May. Max, no, Max, we're, we're pre- I think we're presenting at a conference the first Tuesday of May. We might have to change that. It might not be the first Tuesday of the month of May. Um, but you guys check back, and we will absolutely have uh, have all of those in there. Um, until next time, you guys can check all of the On the Shoulders of Giants information out on manufacturinghub.live, which is where this show and my other show, The Manufacturing Hub, live. Again, check Max out in Future State Engineering. Check me out kind of everywhere on the internet. And until next Tuesday, we'll see you guys soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.